0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space.
1: They are tailored to you. And so every inch of you is measured. I think they take 250 measurements mm-hmm. and, and it's designed specifically to fit you like a glove and it, just putting it on. You know, that little girl in me was like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe <laughs> Look at me, I'm Mom. here. I have a, a space suit and I feel so fortunate to say that my spacesuit is going to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Cool. And so it will eventually be on display there.
0: Make sure they know it's on loan and if you get another flight, you're gonna take it back temporarily. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: But what's cool about it is that Bessie Coleman became the first black female to earn her pilot's license in 1921. And she had to do that during a time of segregation. She had to leave the United States and go to France to earn her pilot's license. And a hundred years later, I become the first black female pilot of a spacecraft. Exactly 100 years later.
0: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplorers.com. If there was a contest to win a real spaceflight, like orbiting the Earth spaceflight, would you enter it? My guest today did, and she won. Dr. Cyan Proctor is an adventurous soul with wide ranging interests. She was a finalist in NASA's 2009 astronaut selection, but didn't make the final cut from 47 down to 9. What that means is that she was absolutely astronaut material, but for some reason or another, NASA felt her skill set didn't align well enough with their upcoming missions. So she settled in as a community college geology professor and kept her hand in space exploration with a variety of analog missions, which are projects that have people living and working in stark volcanic landscapes or the underwater environment to better understand what it might take for human crews to carry out complex missions in harsh environments like Mars. That pandemic hit her hard, as it did so many of us, but had the silver lining of awakening her artistic talents, which are what led her to that contest and the chance to live in space for a few days. Scions is a great story of passion and perseverance, creativity, and service to the greater good. And our chat was my first chance to hear what flying with SpaceX is really like. I hope you enjoy it. Cyan am fellow geologist, that's wonderful, and uh, space flyer and many other things. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I happen to know that just before you hopped on this Zoom call, you were watching the launch of SpaceX, their launch of NASA's Crew 5, and you had a similar experience not all that long ago. So I'm curious what's going through your mind and what you're thinking and feeling as you watched that this morning.
1: Uh, you know, the first thing was, I can't believe I did that. (laughs) Just slightly over a year ago, I got launched on a SpaceX Dragon capsule. And it's been a whirlwind. And so to watch, you know, another crew go up and and to hear the countdown, and then to see the launch, it like brings you right back to that moment. And it's funny, because when it got down to the last, you know, 10 seconds, I, I remember vividly thinking, all right, here we go, you know, let's do this. (laughs) And that same kind of feeling when you hear the sound of the rocket going, I love it.
0: Yeah. But it's interesting. My experience, certainly in every other astronaut that I know of has exactly that. I can't believe I did it. You know, in the space shuttle, when you'd land on a runway, you'd get up from your seat and you'd feel crazy heavy after, you know, five or 10 days in in orbit. I remember looking up at the, the overhead, the ceiling above me and thinking, 40 minutes ago, I was floating up there, you know, and now I feel like I'm made of poured
1: concrete stuck to the ground. I know. <laughs> I think everybody needs to experience floating because it's so amazing the way it transforms the way you think about space and volume.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to come back to your mission and SpaceX in general a little later in the podcast. I just couldn't resist starting with that first impression and that odd experience of seeing it and knowing you did it and not quite believing. It doesn't feel the same when you just watch it.
1: Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where I have to remind myself that I went to space. And that I think that's kind of funny. You see a picture you took from orbit and you sort of go, it's supposed to feel different that I know I took that. Or you see a picture of you in orbit and you go, Oh, wait, <laughs> that, was, that was me. It kind of feels like a dream. Like, wow, but it actually happened. The best dream yeah. I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and one that keeps on giving, as the saying goes.
0: It does. So you started way back the year you were born. You were born into a family that had ties to the space program in Guam. Tell me a bit about your, your family and your early life and how long you stayed out in Guam and had all that wonderful tropical influence.
1: Yeah, I, I know you've been there. And what's cool about my family is that from 1966 to 1970, my family was on Guam. And the reason why is my dad was working for a contractor that was stationed at the NASA tracking station there for the Apollo missions, specifically for the Apollo missions. And ironically, I was born just after Neil Armstrong took those famous first steps on the moon. I was born eight and a half months later. So I. <laughs> I am a moon celebration baby, clearly, (laughs) yep, clearly a moon celebration baby, the youngest of four. And a couple of months after I was born, my dad left working for that contractor, left Guam and left, you know, NASA and space and went into commercial aviation and computers and things like that. But I grew up with NASA memorabilia that my dad got from those experiences, including, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but the Apollo 11 crew did a tour of all yeah. the tracking stations. Yeah, when they got home, and so they stopped on Guam. And my um, my dad got Neil Armstrong's autograph when he came to visit. And Neil Armstrong personally thanked my dad for all the help that he did for Apollo 11. Very cool. Well, that's a very,
0: very special autograph because another thing that many people don't know is uh, not long after Apollo 11, as Neil began to realize people were faking his autograph and an autograph they had asked for supposedly personally, they were selling. And so he just flat out stopped signing anything. So if there were Neil Armstrong autographs circulating around, the one thing you knew is they weren't his. Ah, yeah. Yeah.
1: And on one
0: of the big anniversaries, 40th anniversary, I think, Of the Apollo 11 landing, maybe it was the 50th, lose track of the dates. But at any rate, you know, the Smithsonian and the White House wanted to create just a very limited edition, like one copy for the National Archives, one copy for the Smithsonian Museum, one copy for the White House of Apollo 11 uh, memento. And it took the personal intervention of the President of the United States to persuade Neil to sign even that.
1: (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. And so... It's been a treasured heirloom in my family ever since I was a kid, just going in and seeing that. And I actually have the photo of my dad the day he was at the airport waiting for them to arrive. And so it's so it just this kind of like special thing.
0: Yeah. Well, did that bleed into you, your dad's work and interest in space stuff bleed into you from a very early age? What were your youngest interests?
1: What kind of little girl were you? Tomboy? Oh my goodness. I've been an explorer at heart from the beginning, but man, I wanted to fly and I didn't want to fly just anything. I wanted to fly military fighter jets when I was a young, young, as the earliest memories, I'm talking five, six. I loved planes. I loved watching for them in the sky, but I was particularly fascinated with military fighter jets.
0: Any sense where that arose from? It was aviation common topic of discussion at your dinner table, or
1: not at all? So I, I was like a you know a little bit of a strange duck. You're the weird um, kid. My, my parents, they were like, ah, <laughs> uh, we don't know where where this is coming from. It's clearly the moon celebration party. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I had older brothers and they did models, but I was always it was the only models I ever wanted to build were military aircraft, <laughs> and I just loved watching the old military aviation. TV shows like Baba Black Sheep. Yeah. And just um, my dad would buy me books that had all the different types of military jets in them. And then he would take me to the model shop to buy. I remember I made this beautiful F4U Corsair, which is not a fighter jet, but it was my favorite World War II military Mm -hmm. aircraft. And in high school, you know, most people have pinups of like teen idols and stuff. I had the two that I had were an F 16 inverted with a pilot. And I was like, oh my goodness, I want to do this one day. So I I put that in my locker. And the other one was Indiana Jones (laughs) as an adventurer. Yeah.
0: What kinds of things did you do in your elementary, middle school, high school
1: years? Were you very athletic, outdoorsy, bookish? Very much so. I didn't discover science fiction and the love of reading until high school when I discovered Isaac Asimov. But as a young kid, I loved being outside. I loved you know, catching salamanders and, and even snakes and just exploring the woods and building, like I said, models. But I also was very athletic. I was a true tomboy in the sense that I played baseball and football with the boys in the neighborhood, I guess you'd say. And then eventually I went on to become a high school running track and field. So as you
0: look back on your sporting development as a, as a child, What threads, if any, do you see coming out of those experiences that helped to make you the character and the person you are and put you on the path that you've ended up on?
1: Well, you know, I think the exploration part is an interesting one because just that sense of discovery for myself and realizing that to be an explorer, because those are the things that, you know, dream of as a kid that, and space being the ultimate form of that kind of exploration, but thinking about how, oh, you know, everything had kind of been discovered or having a sense of feeling that way for humanity and and realizing that i didn't need to discover something new for humanity to, to be an explorer that you know just as long as i was discovering something new for myself then i was an explorer and that really changed the way i thought about my learning and then the sports really you know track and field's interesting because it's an individual sport but yet it's also a team sport where you know collectively you try to win the meet and and learning how to kind of like develop my own sense of competition and what that means for myself and then also where that fits in the the dynamics of a team um, and how you get along with your your other teammates but I can tell you as a young kid I was very independent
0: huh yeah and your parents comfortably gave you that much leash so you could really <laughs> feel
1: that and develop that. I should say my dad did. I mean, my dad, ah. I look back at my dad and I'm like, what? I mean, he bought me a Rambo knife. If you if you're old, you to remember that, he bought me a 12-inch Rambo knife when I was like 10 years old because Rambo came out and I was running around <laughs> through the woods with this. So my dad was full on board with like, me just exploring and, and doing whatever I wanted for the most part. And my mom I, I was slightly terrified at the idea of everything that I was doing.
0: Yeah, that sounds terribly familiar from my background. <laughs> I, I can sympathize. But however terrified she was, kudos to your mom, because she clearly didn't dump her anxiety onto you. Right. Or not not very much. Right. That was like my problem to deal with the anxiety, not load it onto
1: Scion she was always good at that. Like she would say, you know, like, oh, why would you want to do that? Well, you know, the concern. But she never stopped me. And mm. then once it was over, she would be like, I'm so proud of you. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> that that was the thing that was really interesting, particularly as, you know, our relationship grew and, and I got older and kept doing all of these things that, you know, she never imagined that she would be able to do herself. And And I think that's what's interesting about my parents that. You know, half of their lives was as a young adult and a kid. They were in segregation, so they grew up with a very different expectations and, to some extent, fears for not only themselves but for me and my siblings. Sure. Well, they grew
0: up with some real and daunting boundaries. You know, Absolutely. not not set by themselves but set upon them yep. by the world at large. So
1: exactly, and they. I know my mom. A lot of her fear was out of acceptance for me and my siblings, the threat of something happening to us as we, you know, push those boundaries.
0: Yeah. The twin threat in your case, right? The threat that one of your physical exploits goes wrong or the threat that someone so dislikes you being there that you you get a personal attack just because of who you are. Yes.
1: Yep. Something that's definitely real. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So when did your focus, you said reading kind of came to the fore in in high school with science fiction were you kind of always, you were always locked on flying, were you kind of always locked on science or engineering as, as also twin loves or as your pathway to that? How did that all come together?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I was always naturally gifted toward science and, and mathematics, and my dad, neither of my parents had college degrees, but my, so my dad was a self-taught mathematician and he just loved mathematics so much. I just remember as a kid he'd be like, "Come here. I got to show you this math equation." <laughs> and, and you know, and as a kid you're like, "Oh, you're rolling your eyes." And you're like, "Thanks, dad." <laughs> huh. Right? But he he was adamant. Both of my parents were from uh, my earliest memories that me and my siblings would go to school and get as educated as we could because they saw education as the way to opportunities and that that would, you know, break down barriers that were in place for them. And so, my my dad was pretty, you know. He was like, "Yeah, you'll go to college and you'll get a degree in science or engineering or mathematics." <laughs> like when I told him, "Oh, I want to run off to Hollywood and and become an actress," he was like, "Ah, uh, no." <laughs> Why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> in high school, I loved I did acting and I had all these movie posters. But my, the movie posters I had on my wall were Star Wars, of course, and Star Trek. And I've always loved science fiction, particularly. Star Wars, Star Trek, and then obviously Indiana Jones and those kinds of, of adventures. And so I, back then, you know, you would get the movie posters and you'd put them up on your wall. And I know my dad was just, he was like, yeah, this is great, but you know, (laughs) you will get a degree in a science or, you know, engineering. (laughs) All right.
0: So you, Ended up at Arizona State for your graduate degrees. Where'd you do your undergraduate? And tell me, what was your experience in deciding on what your major was going to be?
1: Well, you know, it, it, some things happen along the way. You know, those childhood dreams slip away. I was in the Civil Air Patrol and doing the things, thinking that I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. And then, I, you know, I got glasses. Not that I would have become a military reader, but I dreamt that that was going to be my path. But if you didn't have 20-20 vision, you weren't going to be able to do that. So was that a big body blow when you discovered that? Or? It really was because I didn't know what I wanted to do because I just thought, okay, I I saw flying as something I could do. And this is one of those things where, you know, not having some mentorship because my parents were like, oh, you know, you just got to move on. Yeah. And nobody ever said, well, you could become a, a commercial airline pilot or, you know, you could fly. But I had never even thought about that. The commercial side was it just wasn't of interest to me. And then my dad got sick with terminal cancer when I was just going into high school. And so that kind of changed things, too, because he was going through treatment. So I didn't do the traditional stuff of going to, you know, visit schools and all of that. And from the beginning, my dad was like, you're going to go to Edinburgh University where your brother is. And I was like, no, I'm not.
0: Where's Edinburgh University?
1: It's in Pennsylvania. It's a Pennsylvania state school. And I was like, no, I'm not. My (laughs) brother, who's two years older than me, that used to beat me up when I was a kid and (laughs) didn't let me play with him and and his friends. I was like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And I fought my parents all the way to the day that they were driving me down to Edinburgh. I was defiant in the back seat, arms (laughs) crossed. And my my mom had the catalog and she's flipping through it in the front. She said, oh, hey, Cyan, you know, this looks like an interesting degree. It's environmental science. You should major in that. And I was in the back backseat. I was like, yep, OK, fine. I don't care. <laughs> so I signed up for that major. I'm going to play this all the way out, man. <laughs> and yep. And I just and I signed up for it because I was so defiant and didn't care. But the funny thing is, you know, I got to school and my brother came to my dorm, was like, hey, let's go. And I'm like, where are we going? He's, he's like, there's a party. We got to go hang out. And I ended up becoming really close to my brother, Chris, even to this day. And it was because I went to college with him. Yeah, He graduated. It took him five and a half years and me four years. So we did three and a half years together and we ran track and field together. And huh. so my dad kind of knew what he was doing. And my dad passed away after my freshman year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny how wonderful older brothers become once they've gone off to college for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, for sure. And then I got my undergrad in environmental science with an emphasis uh, minor in math. And then I went off to Edinburgh University. But in between that, I moved home and became a video editor for the 5, 6 and 11 o'clock news in <laughs> Rochester, New York, because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I want to go
0: back to the environmental sciences major I mean, that's a great label. You hear it all the time. What does that mean you study?
1: Well, you know, back then, the environmental science and the reason why my mom pointed it out to me was because it was a hodgepodge, a collection of just different classes. I took ecology and meteorology and oceanography. I took like a physical geology class. I took physics. I took chemistry. I took biology. It was like they took something from every, you know, science discipline and mashed it together and I liked that because I loved being able to kind of explore all of these different topics, but the the big issue was you didn't do a deep dive into one specific area,
0: yeah, but it, you know those are all the building blocks you need to have a grasp of to start yes. to understand how the this planet works mm-hmm. you know any part of the planet, so environmental sciences pick up that sheepskin diploma and back to Rochester and go video editing. I did. You're <laughs> enough of a digital. You're enough younger than me. You probably were already pretty astute on digital and video by that point. Was that always a side interest?
1: You know, my senior year, because I, I still loved television and acting. I did a, a play while I was at Edinburgh. And so my senior year, I had to take some electives. So I took television productions. Ah, and ironically, they were—it wasn't digital yet. It was still three-quarter-inch tape-to-tape editing. And and so when I moved home, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like a lot of people, they graduate and they're like, uh, "I'm not sure what the yeah. next step is." So I moved home, and in the paper, because back then it was the newspaper yep, still on your breakfast table. <laughs> and I saw that they were looking for a video editor at the local TV station. And I applied and I got it. And it was a wonderful experience of seeing how, you know, you do live in studio news, how you edit the news packages together and stuff like that. But after two years, I was like, I want to move out West. I want to marry a cowboy and going to grad school was the best way to do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm impressed that with like one college class in video editing, you just had the confidence to go apply. I think I've I would say that more women that I know would have said, well, I'm not really one. I just have a class. Yes. So what do you attribute that confidence to?
1: That was one of the things where I didn't even realize. This is the the funny thing is that, and it, it wasn't until I got the job and I showed up and I met the other video editors and they were all kind of mad at me because they were like, how did you get this this job? You don't even have a degree in television productions. And I was like, there was a degree in television production. <laughs> <Who knew? laughs> like, I like, I, I, was like, oh, I didn't, you know. And so I think it was just ignorance on my part because I didn't even realize that that was a thing that you went and got a degree in. I just, you know, when I took the television productions class, the teacher was really great because she saw something in me and she was like, do you want to know learn how to edit? And so she kind of took me aside and I was like, yeah, this would be great. And so she taught me all of the basics. And then I just thought, well, okay, I have a skill set. And I didn't have a lot of options in Rochester, New York for an environmental science degree. Well, true.
0: <laughs> so out of the blue, I mean, you're Guam, you're Northeast United States, you're an environmental science major. And out West cowboy,
1: you are a hidden country music fan along the way. I mean, what's the deal you know, here? The two things I love to watch as a kid. Well, there were three things. There were three things that I fundamentally watched all the time. One was the military kind of like aviation, blah, blah, black sheep. And, you know, those kind of shows. And the second one was Star Trek and particularly Star Trek, the next generation. Me and my dad watched every episode together. And then the other one was Westerns. Um, you know, <laughs> old enough to, to remember Westerns were a thing. They, they were, were, a were a big thing. Bonanza. Yes. And Big Valley. And. I just loved, I had this fantasy of owning horses. You know, I had the little fake little yep. horses when I was a kid growing up. And again, my my parents were like, we don't know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've got this this young girl who loves horses. And we my parents had never, ever been on a horse and flying and all of these things.
0: Yeah, horses and jets are not an unknown combination, but they're not the most common combination.
1: Right. And so I just thought, oh, one day I'm going to move out West and marry a cowboy and live on the open range. And <laughs> you know, somehow that sounded very appealing to me.
0: <laughs> you did go out West. That's
1: when you went out to grad school at Arizona State. I did. I decided that I would move out West. And you know, what you don't know, you don't know. My dad had passed away. My mom was a housewife. And so I had to figure out how do I apply? I thought, Okay, I don't know anybody out west, but how do I get there? Okay, I will apply to grad school. So I applied to four different schools, and my criteria was that it, it had to be Colorado or west. They had to accept me into a master's program with an environmental science undergrad. And I just kind of went from there. Yeah. I applied to four different schools, four different programs, and Arizona State University gave me the best deal. And I packed up my black. Jeep Wrangler hard top no air conditioning all right I, <laughs> I know and I drove across the country for the first time at I think I was 24 23 or 24 years old and and went to Tempe Arizona I never even went to visit the school I none of the schools yeah mm-hmm. ASU has also
0: got a lot of strengths in planetary geology did you stay in the environmental sciences did you start picking up some planetary influences out there
1: This is the funny thing. You know, I'd given up on that kind of dream of of being an astronaut when I was 16 because i had seen my way to becoming an astronaut through the pilot lens. And and to me, mission specialists were, they were rocket scientists. They were people who went to MIT and Stanford and, and they were super smart. And I was like, oh, you know, that's not me. And so when I got to ASU, I think they accepted like 13 or 14 graduate students, and at least 10 of them were planetary scientists. And it never even dawned on, I never even considered it. I wanted to be a hydrogeologist. I wanted to learn about our planet. And I was just fascinated with traveling our planet Earth. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a pretty cool place to travel. It is. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so- Not long after, I would imagine you finished your PhD, you were a finalist in NASA's 2009 astronaut selection, right? So when did that hit your radar screen and when did you drop the gotta be a test pilot lens and and start to realize, well, no, wait a minute. I, I am an engineer. I am a scientist.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it was really interesting because I went off to grad school because I had my undergrad was environmental science and, you know, my master's was in geology there was that disconnect and I had to take all of these undergrad deficiencies. I had only taken one geology class. And so it took me four years to get my master's because the first two years were making up all those deficiencies. And thank goodness, Arizona State University allowed me to come as a graduate student and take those as graduate credits. But they also made me a TA. And that's when I realized that I wanted to be a college professor. Was uh, because so you got to experience. help teach
0: undergraduates. Yes. Yeah.
1: So I graduated with my master's. And then I got my full time job at South Mountain Community College in Phoenix, Arizona, as a geology professor. And while I was doing that, I knew I wanted to be a good teacher. So I went off and got my Ph.D. in science education at night school at Arizona State University. Ah. And that actually took me um, it took me eight years to get through that because I was taking one class at a time and, and working full time. And so, and then I was traveling around the world as a college professor. I had my summers off, so I got scuba certified, I got my pilot's license, and I was traveling and doing these like faculty exchanges all over the world, and and just uh, really enjoying my career. When two things happened: one, my community college was part of the SLSTP program, the the NASA Space Life Science Training Program for undergrads, and. As a result of that, we got to send some undergrads to Kennedy Space Center and they were looking for mentors. And so they asked me if I would, you know, go spend a summer at Kennedy Space Center. And I was like, oh, yeah, that okay. doesn't sound too hard. <laughs> and So doing ecology, you know, because the uh, it sits on a nature preserve. There. Yeah. Yeah. So I went and uh, I spent the summer there with undergrads and I was helping them and the scientists doing field work. And I loved it. And, it. and I kind of rekindled my my love of, you know, space and exploration. And then a couple of years later, NASA put out a call for astronauts and somebody sent me the application and said, NASA's looking for astronauts. You should apply. And I thought, one, wow, you thought of me. <laughs> and two, how do they select astronauts? I didn't even know. I had never even looked into it. And then I, I realized, oh, it's USA Jobs. And I clicked on the link and I, my curiosity, because you know, I thought they're never gonna select me. I'm just a community college professor from Phoenix, Arizona. Nobody knows who I am. But I clicked on the link and I opened it up and I realized that I was qualified. I had my PhD, I had my scuba certification, I had my my pilot's license, you know, I had cultural experience from traveling and teaching around the world. And the only thing that I was missing off the application was Russian because they knew that this class would be the first one to, that would fly on Soyuz because the shuttle would well, be... It so
0: retiring. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Your timing was very good in a number of ways. And one is that, you know, in my era, 100 years before you applied, <laughs> graduate degrees really had to be in a hard science. Mm-hmm. But I forget quite when the change happened that NASA realized a couple things. One was we've got more things to do in orbit that don't all require the nth degree of technical training. So we can broaden the pool. And it was a value to having educators be full fledged astronauts, not, you know, ride along visitor just on one flight. So it took them a while, but they finally opened that category up.
1: They did. And it was interesting because 2004, they'd selected the three teacher astronauts. And then for this selection, 2009, they took that away again and they combined it all as one, uh, but I still build myself as a community college professor that mm-hmm. consider me because yeah. this is my skill set and this is what I could bring to the table. And I was extremely surprised as I made it through round one and then round two and, you know, down to that yes, no phone call. Yeah.
0: The numbers are always daunting to people, but there were some number of thousand of
1: mm-hmm. applications
0: in the bin when you came through and a couple of rounds of interviewing and medical and this and that, NASA winnows down usually just something around 200 people they do an intense interview with. I think in earlier years, the 200 or so interviewees, it was direct from there to the phone call. And you guys, they added a step in between where they would have a group of finalists, which was like something just shy of 50 in your case. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So it was really an interesting situation where they were going to do 40 finalists. So we had first round interviews. I think there were 200. Then second round was 110. And then the finalists were 40 originally. And, you know, and then um, NASA had an issue where, well, this is the rumor. They got their 40 finalists, selected, sent it all up to, you know, the higher Bs and it got kicked back for lack of diversity. And so they called in seven more finalists. And it was funny, we showed up and we were like, wow, we're an interesting, weird group of (laughs) finalists because I was 39 then by the time I was a finalist. But, you know, we were just like, this is a hodgepodge because we didn't know that the original selection had been kicked back for lack of diversity. And so then they brought in us seven and which was great, went through the selection, you know, the medical, everything, and then waited for that yes, no phone call. And unfortunately, it was that heartbreaking no. yeah. You're like, oh no, what do I do now?
0: <laughs> we talked to a number of folks who've been through one or more rejections. The fact that you made it to the 110 group. Yeah. I mean, that's really huge confirmation that you've got all of what it takes to to do this job. You know, then it's a down select that starts to become based on more and more nuanced and, and frankly, subjective factors, almost down to culture style, who will mm-hmm. fit well with the cadre we've already got. Those sort of factors that are, they're not really judgments on the individuals. They're form fit function kind of factors.
1: Yeah. And you know, and that was the thing. Like I had to renegotiate my feelings around that phone call of that no. Cause at first you're like, oh my goodness, you know, I suffering from imposter syndrome my entire right. life. I was like, you know, okay, they figured out that I don't belong here. <laughs> I need to go get my advanced scuba. I need to get my commercial pilot's license. I need to go get another degree. And I I started down this track of like you know, turning my life upside down, trying to fit what I thought they wanted. And then I stopped myself because I was going crazy and said, you know what? I need to celebrate this because I was, quote, almost an astronaut. And that's something, to, that's something worth celebrating. And once I reframed that and rethought about this and turned it into a celebration, everything in my life shifted. And I was okay with that. And I was able to move forward in a much more healthier way And that's when I became an analog astronaut living in moon and Mars simulations.
0: Tell me, number one, for those of us who don't know in detail, what does analog astronaut mean and how did you get into that? I mean, you've done a space analog in Hawaii, you've done a month in Barrow, Alaska, you've been in Chile as the educator ambassador for the astronomy programs from NS National Science Foundation, you even came to my more recent alma mater, NOAA, as a teacher at sea, so What
1: was propelling all that? I mean, are you just an adrenaline junkie? (laughs) No, you know, it's that love of exploration and learning something new for myself and challenging myself. And, you know, being a geoscientist, you know, I love our planet and I just want to go out and explore as much of it in as many facets as I can. But also as a college professor, you know, I want to take that, those experiences and and transform them into lessons to share with students, um, into science communication. And so for me, I think that that's always been the driver. Now, an analog astronaut is somebody who engages in the advancement of human spaceflight, but here on Earth, and they're not associated with necessarily uh, an agency like NASA or JAXA or ESA. And so they're just individuals who love human spaceflight, and they want to do their part. And in 2013, they they opened this new analog site on the Big Island of Hawaii called High Seas. And the initial funding for that was through NASA. And NASA wanted to um, use this with a couple of PIs, one out of the University of Hawaii, Manoa, and the other one out of Cornell University. They were the principal investigators for the project. They got NASA money to start this analog site and to investigate food strategies for long duration spaceflight. There was an analog
0: done, again, piece of history often lost. When NASA was going to transition from the Apollo missions, which were you know, days to maybe a week long, to Skylab, which was meant to be a permanent station that people would be aboard for months. And they actually created the Smeet the Skylab Medical Experiments Analog Test, in an altitude chamber on Earth at NASA and put a handful of astronauts, Bob Crippen was one of them, to live in those conditions for a month. And they even simulated things like a little bit of communications delay because there were not satellites in orbit above you that could relay your your communications all the time instantly. You actually had to wait until you were passing over a site like Guam where your dad had worked. Then you could talk to Houston. In between, you were on your own. They simulated all of that. And I think that's the first mission patch that Charles Schultz created was his little Snoopy character with his bubble helmet looking rather aggrieved. Snoopy doesn't look real happy in that patch, it has to be said.
1: <laughs> you know, um, yeah. And so NASA wanted to continue this tradition. And, and of course, there's a, there's a lot of great places here on Earth, whether it's Antarctica, up in the Arctic region, but Hawaii The Big Island of Hawaii with its volcanic terrain and stuff, very Mars-like. And so this new habitat was created and I lived in it for four months with five other individuals. And every time we went outside, we had to wear a space suit. And it was specifically to think about the way astronauts eat now with these pre-prepared already, you know, just add water and heat meals versus using freeze-dried ingredients like meats and vegetables and allowing astronauts to be able to creatively cook? And what does that do psychologically and the impact of food and mood, particularly for long duration space flight? What do you think, based on that experience, what do you think meals on Mars will be like? You know, I think that they will be more like that creative culinary. At first, it will be a combination. There'll be a lot of, you know, already pre-prepared meals because we just have to have those. But there will also be this idea of how do we grow food and preserve it? How do we take that water and recycle it and then have the nutrients in the form of food? And then how do we enable creative cooking? Because there is something culturally stimulating when you allow people to be able to express their history through food, preparing meals for for their colleagues, um, their crew members. But not everybody's a foodie and not everybody likes to cook. And so yeah. you're going to have the people who are like whose day it is to make meals are going to be like, here's your... Pre-prepared meal, yeah, <laughs> you
0: know. <laughs> but there is there is also that social factor of doing meals together, you know, very kind much of so. accustomed to. Mm-hmm. You did a raft of that sort of expedition from like twenty thirteen to twenty seventeen. Tell me then, as you experienced it, when and how did the opportunity to go fly with SpaceX with Jared Isaacman on <laughs> Inspiration Four? What was that story? Tell us the backstory. You've never quite told everybody.
1: I never would have even guessed it. It was really funny. In 2019, NASA put out another call for astronauts and people were like, are you applying? Are you applying? And I'm like, no, you know, I was 49 at the time. I was like, no, I, you know, I think that if I'm going to go to space, it's, you know, one day I'm going to go commercial, you know, and it was kind of like that hope that, yeah, one day, not knowing two years later, I would be, you know, flying on a dragon capsule. And so then COVID happened and I was turning 50 and the world shut down. And my biggest hobby has always been travel, you know, and I couldn't go anywhere and my marriage was ending. And so I just found myself in this unique situation where I felt stifled and like a caged animal. And that's when, you know, you unleash your creativity and, and that's when I became a space artist and a poet. And so I started creating art, And writing poetry and sharing it with people online. And people were like, oh my God, this is great. And then Inspiration Four was announced during the Super Bowl. And I didn't watch the Super Bowl, but people kept saying, hey, you can win a seat to space if you donate to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And I was like, wait, what is this? And so, of course, I donated to St. Jude. And then I was on Twitter and I saw people posting videos about how they wanted to be selected to go on this Inspiration Four mission. And I thought there's there's a second seat. Wait a second. And so I did. some <laughs> digging, on, yeah. And I was like, whoa, there's a second seat, the prosperity seat where you had to show your entrepreneurial spirit and open up a platform uh, to sell something under Jared's platform. And you had to create a Twitter video about why they should select you. And that's when I came up with my poem space to inspire. I read that as my entry and I opened up a shop where I sold my art and it was like magic. I entered the contest four days before it ended and you had to show that some virality, you had to show that you could go viral to some extent and I rallied Twitter and within three days I got 70,000 views and that was enough to get on. Yeah. To get on the judges radar And then a week later after it closed, um, I found out that I had won Inspiration 4 and that I was going to space.
0: Just a little backdrop for those who haven't, who aren't space junkies like you and me. Jared Isaacman is a businessman who founded a digital payments platform called Shift4. And he basically chartered a four-seat Dragon capsule for this mission and and three others, by the way. And then came up with this idea to use it as a fundraiser for St. Jude's. And I didn't know one part that you just said, that he sort of designated the various seats to a purpose, like to prosperity, to yes. other themes. There
1: were yeah. four seats that he called pillars. And one was the leadership pillar, which he took as the commander of Inspiration 4. And then the second one is the hope pillar, where he partnered with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital to fly a childhood cancer survivor. And that's right. how Haley Arsenal was picked. And then the other two were literally given away in contests. One was the the generosity seat, where if you donated to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, you could win at your seat that way. And then the other one was the prosperity seat, where you had to show your entrepreneurial spirit. Cool. What
0: was that training like? Did you use Houston facilities, or were they all SpaceX facilities? And I, I guess the other thing I'm really curious to ask you is, I mean, the SpaceX capsule is much more automated than, say, a space shuttle was. So tell me a bit more about You were the pilot on the flight. What did that mean your duties were if everything went smooth? And what did it mean you had to be ready to do if things didn't go super smooth?
1: Yeah. So we did all of our training with SpaceX and then independently contracted out to like do the centrifuge and to do the crew bonding by hiking Mount Rainier and the hypobaric chamber, you know, those kinds of things. But I got selected as the mission pilot. And what that means, because the Dragon capsule is autonomous, it means that you really become a systems engineer. Like you understand how all of the systems of the Dragon Capsule work and what you can and cannot do. Um, So you train me and my commander, Jared Isaacman. We spent a lot of time in the simulator going through contingencies and emergencies and learning like, what if the flight computer, there was an issue? What if we have a fire or a depress of the, the capsule? Like what can we do in those situations? Can we, you know, how do we, doing an emergency deorbit. And my job really was to provide situational awareness to my commander through understanding the systems and um how they work so that he could make decisions along with SpaceX in case there was a an issue.
0: Yeah. And of course you got to wear those super spiffy looking white flight suits, far far classier looking than anything I got to wear it to orbit. What are they like inside? What do they feel like?
1: Oh, they're amazing because they I mean they are tailored to you. And so every inch of you is measured. I think they take 250 measurements Hmm. and and it's designed specifically to fit you like a glove and just putting it on you know, that little girl in me was like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe <laughs> Look at me, I'm mom. here. I have a, a space suit. And I feel so fortunate to say that my space suit is going to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Cool. And so it will eventually be on display there.
0: Make sure they know it's on loan. And if you get another flight, you're going to take it back temporarily. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: But what's cool about it is that Bessie Coleman became the first black female to earn her pilot's license in 1921. And she had to do that during a time of segregation. She had to leave the United States and go to France to earn her pilot's license. And a hundred years later, I become the first black female pilot of a spacecraft exactly 100 years later.
0: Yeah, that that's pretty cool. You say a lot of things in some of your web materials about visualizing your future. And I've, got two questions for you here as we're sort of coming towards our time. One is, I'm really curious at those big junctures in your life that you described, how it, how detailed or how broadly did you envision your future? I mean, did you have sort of a a sense of the direction to go and fill it in as you went, or did you really see it in, in great detail? And then the second part of the question, I'd like to get you to visualize the future of private space flight and specifically Do you think we'll get someday to where the pre-flight briefing is equivalent to the airline briefing, how to buckle your seatbelt and put your tray table up?
1: You know, those are both great questions. One, you know, my entire life, I felt like I was chasing something, you know, I I think it was space. I was chasing space to some degree. There was no formal plan. It was, let's go explore over here. Let's go explore over here. And, And it was kind of like lifting up rocks and being like, is this it? Is this my thing? Is this my thing? And Until one day I, you know, I flipped over the rock and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is it. You know, (laughs) Uh, I found it. But it was always through that explorer's lens of I'm going to try something new and and push my boundaries in this area, because that's what's interesting, pulling my attention right now. And then I would get pulled over in another direction. And again, but it was always this feeling of like there's something out there that is going to propel me to this higher orbit that I, I feel is, is a part of my destiny.
0: It's kind of like you were collecting beads on a string that eventually became that space necklace you had dreamt of.
1: Absolutely, exactly. And when you look back, I see how all of those beads led me to where I am and, and this amazing opportunity that I've had. Uh, when I think of the future of space flight, I definitely think it's going to get to the point where it's you'll still have your pilots kind of like commanders, like the people who are going to be there to understand the systems. And but they're going to be that small crew. And the majority of the people on that spacecraft are going to be the people who are buckling up and going for the ride to a destination, whether it's moon, Mars or beyond. And the goal for, you know, I see it is to create that Jedi space, that just, equitable, diverse and inclusive space. For all of humanity to be able to experience this and to become Earth seeds and go out and fulfill our next phase that humans do, we we are seekers. We go out and we find and and we learn and and we adapt, and that's going to be space exploration.
0: Cool. Well, I think back to the long arc of exploration of Earth, back to the 14 and 1500s. Few people went and they went under the patronage of a king or some grand figure that funded the mission. And over time, they got very good at making the case statement for why we should go here, why we should go there, why I should go back to the Antarctic and do this, you know, the, the, all the famous first kind of things. And nowadays, of course, many hundred years later, we can go explore at levels from our own camping trip on up to commercial expeditions to Mount Everest or National Geographic expeditions to all sorts of destinations. What do you see the commercial arc and drivers to be. You talk about the many people going in space to a destination. I've I've always been skeptical about whether there's really a big mass market demand function for people going to want to go to the moon, like people want to get from New York to LA or one place to another for business, for family, for for reasons like that here on earth. What's going to be the reason people want to do that, do you think?
1: Well, I think that there are two things. They're going to be the people who are just you know fascinated with the experience of going and being able to say that they did that back in the early days of of exploring to you know really harsh regions of our planet, whether it's underwater or you know to the poles. But then there's going to be the economic driver, and that's when you'll see the big change is if there is money to be made and if we can show an economic reason why we need people to go and do this. I think of it as like the gold rush. You know, people literally left Europe to go and populate extreme regions, whether it was Alaska or even, you know, California and all of that because of the idea of the economic prosperity. And if there's an economic prosperity to the moon, Mars or beyond, then you'll get the people who will be willing to go and risk their lives for that advancement. So, what's the next rock that Cyan Proctor is going to turn over? <laughs> well, Kathy, hopefully, it's going on an expedition with you somewhere awesome <laughs> and exciting. <laughs> you know, well, let's talk about that. <laughs> I, I've got some ideas. <laughs> I followed your career, and it's been amazing. And you know, you're a role model, and I just love it. And and so, I think that. More women working together to talk about what exploration is and how you can go out and and do amazing things right here on Earth that are making a difference not only for yourself, but for the people around you and ultimately, you know, our planet.
0: I can't think of a better note to wind our conversation up on than that one. It makes my heart sing. Thanks again for giving me so much of your time and sharing your story. And we'll connect offline to talk about that joint expedition. That
1: sounds awesome. Thanks again for having me.
0: Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com.